Welcome to The Mission Matters. The Mission Matters is a partnership between 1615 and Missio Nexus, who have a shared passion to mobilize God's people to be a part of His mission. The Mission Matters is hosted by Matthew Ellison, President of 1615, and Ted Esler, President of Missio Nexus. Make sure you like, share, and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Matthew Ellison and Ted Esler. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I am Matthew Ellison, and of course, I am joined by my good friend and co-host Ted Esler. Ted, greetings to you, my friend. Greetings. Well, I'm really excited about today's conversation. I know you are as well, but as we always do, we like to start with a softball question and. So I'll start, I'll ask the question, I'll answer it. I'm going to kick it over to you and then you kick it over to our special guest here. All right. Most adventurous thing you've ever done, like skydiving, bungee jumping, whitewater rafting. I've done all those, by the way. I, I would say the most adventurous thing I've ever done is I started a commercial bungee jumping operation business <laughs> wow. when I was 19 years old. I was 19. I, I had jumped in Boulder, Colorado. I, I've always been a bit of an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. And after I jumped and I was hanging up there suspended in the air, I looked down and there was about a hundred people shelling at a hundred dollars a piece to jump. And I did the math quickly in my head and I said, I got to do this. So I did some research at the time. There was only 30 companies in the United States. And so I would say the most adventurous thing I did was not only bungee jump, but I, I, I jumped into the bungee business, Ted. Well, <laughs> that, that's going to be a hard one to beat. Um, <laughs> You know, for me, I mean, I've done a lot of stupid stuff <laughs> throughout my life from cave diving to you name it, never skydived, never done that. But probably the thing that comes to my mind is maybe the most dangerous thing I've willingly done is um, I've been in about eight war zones um, on various ministry assignments. Uh, one time we were in a country that was at war probably shouldn't even say the name of the country. It was in Africa. And we got lost essentially behind the, what were I thought were very ambiguous enemy lines. Mm. And the truth is the people that were hosting us had been lost for about a half a day and didn't know where they were, but they weren't telling us because they were afraid, you know, that we would really freak out and react to that. Um, eventually, we came across a whole group of refugees that had literally just had their village bombed out and raised. And uh, they pointed us back to the direction we needed to go to get out safely. Um, but that's the one that comes to my mind. Now, it's not like a fun thing necessarily, like you said, but um, it was a big thrill at the time. And um, something I would avoid doing again, frankly, it was pretty, pretty tense there for a little while. Um, so on the call today, we have uh, Robert Woodbury, who we're going to call him Bob. I hope that's okay, Bob. Yep, that's How it. about you? What's a thrilling thing that comes to your, your mind? Uh, I went with my family my, uh, to the Minaret of Jom, which is in the center of Afghanistan in 2006. Um, so we went... Uh, flew into uh, a town and then uh, took a, a vehicle 
across the it's basically tracks and then down a riverbed and then uh, there was a metal cable over the river and so we all had to hang on to this thing while they pulled us uh, like holding on to a pulley and uh, I climbed up to the top of the Minaret of Jam which was a tower uh, that was built in the 12th century wow. uh, with my family. <laughs> so it, I, I've been on the, the Karakorm Highway there in northern uh -huh. Pakistan. Yeah. And they have these cable transportation cars that go across between mountaintops. Uh-huh. Big long cable. And then there's like a metal box hanging on a pulley. Yeah. Oh my word. I, I mean, as far as dangerous things to do. That one probably is above it all because the guys running it, trust me, they're they're not OSHA certified in management <laughs> monitor. And uh, so yeah, I have the best picture of my dad going across that thing, and he's oh, just smiling. Know. It's so funny. It was, I mean, it's like pulley, and there's like a a stick that's a Y, and then yes. there's this nylon rope underneath that's sort of like two thirds frayed. And you stick one foot on that and you hold on to the stick and they pull you across this <laughs> raging river. <laughs> yep. Oh yep. Well, those are fun experiences to have had, not to look forward uh -huh. to. Well, our guest today is Bob Woodbury. And uh, Bob has written and spoken about a topic that I think Matthew and I have surfaced numerous times. And one of our readers has asked about and that is the influence of missionaries. And we're going to jump into it deep in a second here. But before I do that, could you give our audience just a little background about who you are and what you uh -huh. do? Um, I'm a professor at the Institute for Studies of Religion at Baylor University. And um, although previously I've worked at the University of Texas at Austin and at the National University of Singapore, um, I'm a sociologist. And uh, I study the social impact of missionaries. So I try and look at historical patterns and look how consistent they are. And then I try and measure it, it statistically. Okay, so one of our listeners uh, wrote in with a question and it basically came about, I'll just, it's kind of like, it's, it's the black and white question. Isn't it colonial right. for us to send missionaries? Is missionaries sending colonial? now? I know your research is more on the impact yeah. of missions, but let's, mm -hmm. so let's start with the impact question. Mm -hmm. And eventually I'm hoping Matthew and I are going to be able to land more on this colonial question. Sure. But give us a big, you know, <clears throat> high level view. What, what's been the impact of missionary work in the world today? Um, well, I, I've been able to measure the impact of 19th century and early 20th century missions. So I, I can't measure the current missions because I don't have complete data on it. Um, but that mission work has profoundly influenced all kinds of things that most people think are of as good things. So um, <clears throat> where there was greater prevalence of Protestant missionaries, um, there is more educational enrollment, higher literacy, lower infant mortality, longer life expectancy, um, more voluntary association membership, more book publishing, larger newspaper circulation, um, uh, higher economic development, uh, lower corruption, and 
greater political democracy. Um, so if you're looking at sort of widespread measures of societal flourishing, um, a lot of those would fit into that uh, measure. And there's plenty of both historical and statistical reasons to believe that those impacts are causal. So I can get into the details of that if you want me to. Um, uh, but Maybe there's lots just, of evidence. I, I so, do think the causal question is where that's that that's what I already wrote down on my yellow notepad as you were speaking. Right. Give us just I, I mean I, again I have had the opportunity to hear what you've spoken in other contexts. Right. But for this shorter format here, we can't go into kind of the detail that I, I know you could. Right. Tell us a little bit about causality. I'll, I'll give you the hardest one. Most of it are a little bit easier than this. So let's say um, there's, there's a strong positive relationship between Protestant missions and life expectancy or and infant mortality, both of those things. Um, and that's true both at the cross-national and the sub-national level. Um, now, the question is, though, what did missionaries cause? Um, here's the hard part. Maybe missionaries went to places where they thought they would live longer or they thought their children would live longer. So you have two options. And if I go here, my kids are likely to die. If I go here, they're likely to live. So I go to the place where they're likely to live. Another issue is, well, maybe um, missionaries went to two different places, but in the healthy place, they lived longer. And in the unhealthy place, they died more quickly. And so you end up having more cumulative missionaries and more institutions and other things like that at the places where they live longer. Because like, if you're gonna set up a school or a hospital or all kinds of stuff, it takes some continuity, um, which is harder to do when lots of people are dying. So how do you tease out what missionaries caused and what are other factors that are correlated where missionaries went or where missionaries stayed. And that's the, the most difficult issue. So I spend a lot of time dealing with that issue. And one way you can do it is to look over time. Now you don't have a lot of places where you have economic or educational data before missionaries arrived, but there are some places and you can show, for example, that missionaries went on average to places that had less education before they arrived and more education after they arrived. So you can show through time, there's this change. Um, same thing with um, economic development. You can show that pattern also. Um, now with health, that part isn't, I haven't fully done it, but I've collected the, the lives of over 200,000 missionaries. Um, and so I can estimate missionary mortality um, when they arrive in a particular place um, to try and control for uh, conditions that were, what conditions were like medically when they arrived. So just, I just wanna make sure our readers, our listeners, I should say, are understanding what you're saying here. When you talk about how long a missionary lives. Yeah. That's different than infant mortality in the culture in which they're working in. It is, yes. And you're trying to isolate out whether or not missionary lifespan is reflected as a kind of like a mirror of the mortality in the culture to isolate it. 
Yeah, I mean, so there's only so much you can do. So let's say you're talking about the 1790s or the 1820s. No one was doing systematic mortality estimates for anybody. So I, 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 it's impossible to know exactly what mortality was like at that time for indigenous populations. Um, but what I can do is I can compare the relative mortality of missionaries. So in a place that has a lot of uh, malaria or yellow fever or other things or that they just didn't know how to deal with until much later. Um, you can see that this environment is unhealthy for Europeans relative to this other place. And that is presumably correlated with um, the disease prevalence in that society. So you're trying to account for it. I mean, there's lots of other things you can do with um, rainfall and temperature and climate and soil quality and, and various other things. But um, I don't know how much people want to get into the details of it, but there's a lot of work that you go in in terms of that way. Now, there's another there's other ways you can get at it, too. So one is to look at arbitrary borders. Um, so if, if you're looking in West Africa, for example, um, borders were constructed in Europe in conferences when people had no idea what was on the ground. But because colonizers had different policies relative to Protestant missionaries, um, you have arbitrary lines that they couldn't cross. And you see differences across those borders not only between colonizers, say for example, the British and the French. So if you look at the border of Ghana and Togo, you will see differences along that border, but also within British colonies where missionaries were allowed to work and where they were not allowed to work. So if you look at Northern Nigeria or Northern Ghana, um, the British tried to, keep Muslim, um, tried to keep missionaries from working with Muslims. They wanted to have indirect rule and work with the indigenous Muslim rulers who had come down to control the slave trade. Um, and the Muslim rulers didn't want missionaries. So they said, basically like, you can't go north of this line. Mm -hmm. And those lines still matter. You can still find, those lines no longer exist. They're in the same country. They're in the same provinces often. They're dividing people in the same ethnic community but you can see differences in education and mortality across those lines, which were drawn in the early 20th century or the late 19th century, um, mostly early 20th century. Um, and uh, it, it still matters. It's interesting. I've been to Northern Ghana, to the Tamale region. Yeah. Uh, and I, I often wondered why there was such a stronghold of Islam and there was you know, obviously a stark difference in the social welfare of the South yeah. and the North, and now it totally makes sense. So thanks for yeah. that insight here. Yeah. Let, let me, let me uh, quote you. This is from your study, okay? Mm -hmm. Most missionaries, and you, you call these missionaries conversionary Protestant missionaries, right. CPM, not to be confused yeah. with church planting movements, by the way, okay? Right. And you say they didn't set out to be political activists, mm -hmm. but came to reform through the back door. So they brought cultural reform through the back door. Right. All of these positive outcomes were somewhat unintended. And, and I bring this up because you maybe have heard this quote flying around today, very popular 
Mm -hmm. um, it's attributed to St. Francis Assisi, although he never mm -hmm. said it. It's mm -hmm. preach the gospel at all times, if necessary, use words. Right. So my question is, in light of your research, do you think humanitarian NGOs are a good starting point in order to earn the, uh, earn the right to be heard? Sure. Uh, um, I, I mean, missionaries have been doing that for a very long time. Um, and I don't know which example to pick, but like China and Korea and Japan banned missionaries for hundreds of years. Um, when Protestants, that's originally was Catholic missionaries, but then Protestant missionaries were excluded as well. Um, when Protestants first showed up, one, there was a sense of cultural superiority. So China viewed itself as the, the Zhongguo is central kingdom. So it, it, they were the center of the world. They were the most civilized. They were the most, um, yeah, the most civilized country in the world. So ever, um, Namban, the Southern barbarians were Europeans. Um, both Catholic and Protestant missionaries tried to use science and education and health to demonstrate that there was value in uh, things that came from outside of the Confucian world. Um, and so Peter Parker opened a, a hospital in um, Canton, Guangdong, uh, where Sun Yat-sen, the first nationalist leader of China, worked. Um, and Matteo Rishi, I mean, set up, you know, uh, trained people in various things, and as so did many other missionaries. So setting up schools and hospitals and trying, but also then it allowed people to voluntarily expose themselves to Christianity. So if you think of something as bad or evil or inferior, or just associated with Western colonization, um, you're less likely to willing, be willing to, it's not something that you think, oh, I wanna really learn about that. And so setting up schools or hospitals was a way of earning people's uh, trust and respect, which then made them more open to take what they were talking about religiously more seriously. Um, but both of those things had uh, long-term impact. Um, and do you yeah. think those, when you use that word conversionary, yeah. in your research of the history, mm -hmm. just because they were doing acts of service, right. did not negate the fact that their objective was conversionistic? Sure. And, and also the, the attempt to convert actually transformed society more in combination with the social service that they did. So how you can look at this is, for example, with um, printing. Um, printing was not invented in Europe. Movable font metal type was not invented in Europe. All of those were invented in East Asia. Gutenberg was late on the thing. The thing he invented was a press to screw it down um, tightly. And that's mostly because the paper in Europe was inferior to the paper in East Asia. They had higher quality uh, paper and you could brush on 
from a printing block and it worked. Um, because of the roughness of European paper, you had to press it down. Uh, within East Asia or East and Central Asia, uh, virtually all Mahayana and Tantric Buddhist societies printed. No Muslim society, no Hindu society, and no Theravada Buddhist society printed. They were exposed to it for a very long time. The Uyghurs, which were in Western China, when they were a combination of, of Buddhist, Manichaean, and Christian, they printed. When they converted to Islam, they stopped. And they didn't print again until the 20th century when Protestant missionaries reintroduced it. There was Muslims throughout China. They didn't print until the 1600s when they printed in response to Catholic missionaries. Um, but then when Catholic missionaries were kicked out, it declined and it didn't, it reemerged when Protestant missionaries started to print massive amounts of texts in the vernacular language, which threatened people, um, threatened people religiously. And so it's not, throughout Asia, people knew the technology of printing. So for example, the first person to write about how printing was done by the Chinese was a Muslim scholar from Persia. Muslims printed paper money briefly, they printed amulets, they printed odd certificates, and they printed book covers using the same techniques that the uh, Chinese used, using the same types of paper as used in West China. But they didn't use it to print books. They knew how. They didn't do it. They printed amulets with large segments from the Quran and odd certificates with three colors, printing technology, which could have easily been used for printing books. They didn't print books. In response to Protestant missionaries coming and using printing tens of thousands of texts to try and convert people, that's when Muslims and Hindus and Theravada Buddhists start to print. And you can show this direct relationship. It also transformed printing in East Asia. So Protestant missionaries introduced the first newspapers in East Asia. They transformed how language was used in East Asia. So printing was used mostly in Sinitic. So like ancient version of Chinese, even in Korea and Japan, they used an ancient version of Chinese for virtually all their printing. Um, Protestants wanted ordinary people to be able to read the Bible. That meant that printing had to be done in a language that ordinary people could understand, not just highly educated people. And it had to be affordable to ordinary people. So they pioneered language, writing, writing and printing large numbers of texts in language that was designed for ordinary people and mass education that was designed for bringing in women and poor people, not just the elite. And because of the conversionary threat, I mean, they're using these texts to try and convert people. That's when other religious groups change and shift how they act, which then has profound economic and political impact. So like, imagine our world without newspapers or without widespread books, they're all manuscripts. Think how much you think that matters. Yeah. That was spread for, by religious, for religious reasons. Bob, the uh, person that wrote in talked about the perspective of a lot of young people today, uh, yeah. thinking that sending missionaries, as Ted said, is colonial. Right. And that there is this draw for a lot of Christian young people towards issues of social justice, uh -huh. cultural transformation, and there is right. a retreat mm -hmm. from gospel proclamation from a lot of right. them. That's not true of all of right. them, but that right. was the person who wrote in. That was their concern. Let me ask you right. a question. Sure. Do you think that missionaries will lose their cultural transforming power mm -hmm. if they make 
cultural transformation their focus. If that's the energizing focus of missionaries is cultural transformation rather than gospel proclamation, do you think they lose that cultural transforming power? Part, Part of it. So like when I was talking about printing, the goal of converting, it, it, it wasn't that Catholic missionaries and foreign trade companies and colonizers didn't print in South Asia and Southeast Asia and other places they did. Nobody copied them. They printed for hundreds of years and nobody copied them. It's when Protestant missionaries came and used Bibles and tracts to try and convert people, that's when it undermined local elites who were trying to keep power to themselves. So, I mean, there's so much complexity with this issue, but Europeans are not the only people who have power and use power to try and discriminate against people or to keep themselves separate. Elites throughout history all around the world have tried to control um, religious communities, tried to control access to information, etc. The Protestant idea that everyone has to read the Bible for their own language, which is a religious idea, undercut that in a profound way, democratizing access to information and power in a way that other religious traditions did not do. Um, and <clears throat> so, I mean, that's one aspect of it, um, not viewing it as sort of European powerful colonization, others not. Power domination and colonization has been gone and slavery have been throughout tons of societies, well, virtually all societies for a very, very long time. Um, the desire to convert people also Put, put people in context where they became, well, when missionaries spread around the world, they were exposed to not only abuses in the societies that existed, that they went to, but also by European settlers and colonizers, which then, because they cared about the people that they were reaching out to, and because they were communicating that care to their supporters back home, they became involved in transform, transform, political transformations, both locally and globally. So if we're looking locally, there's certain things they didn't like. For example, in parts of India, when a high caste Hindu died, his wife was supposed to burn herself alive on his funeral pyre. They thought that was wrong. They mobilized protests against it. That was very controversial. Uh, the British East India Company was upset about it because um, they're causing local turmoil. I think most people would think that's a good thing, even though it's th- there's legitimate concern about outsiders coming in and telling other people what to do. We do that all the time, but just with different values. Mm-hmm. But they also got involved in, in critiquing what Europeans were doing not only in terms of the slave trade, but in terms of other things. So if we look at, for example, in Congo, the the Belgians were forced to allow Protestant missionaries, well, because it was really, it was the King Leopold who set up, it was a private colony. Um, Both the French 
and the Belgians set up monopoly trade companies and they're trying to extract rubber um, from the Congo Basin in the early, late 19th and early 20th century. Rather than pay people, they set up quotas. And if you didn't meet your quota, they would punish you by burning down your crops in your village. And then people would flee to the jungle and many of them died. So you get about 50% population decline in 20 years in the rubber growing areas of the Congo. Um, Protestant missionaries saw that and they photographed it and they wrote back and they set up organizations and they mobilized people to fight that. And they did that in Belgian Congo where they were allowed, in French Congo where they were much more restricted there were no protests. It was only where you had these missionaries who'd gone out there to convert people and who cared about them that you got these protests and at least the worst abuses were stopped. Similarly, in terms of abolitionism, I don't know how long you want me to talk, but like the, the, the missionary movement was crucial. The conversionary missionary movement was crucial to the rise of abolition. Yeah, um, I think I think part of the thing that we're up against is, you know, I call it the James Michener view of mission. Right. People read the book Hawaii. They think that's yeah. what actually happened. Right. When it's demonstrably not what happened. Exactly. Um, but it is what kind of flavors uh, everything yes. that, yeah. that we think about. Right. Um, you know, even you touched on this a little bit, but concepts and understandings of what colonialism constituted in its relationship right. to conversionary Protestant missionaries. Right. Um, even the, you know, William Carey, the founder of the, the modern missionary movement, right. opposed by his own government. It just kind of goes on and on and on. The narrative is, seems to have strayed so far from the history. Yeah, it has. Part, part of it, okay. There's legitimate parts of it and there's non-legitimate parts of it. Um, so there's a little legitimate um, reaction to European Western arrogance and racism, which existed and which influenced missionaries, particularly educated missionaries in the late 19th century and early 20th century. And uh, desire for people to be in control of their own institutions, their own church, et cetera. And there's a process of, of when people set up an organization, like missionaries setting up a church, indigenous people trying to um, gain greater control of that. So there's legitimate parts of it. It just gets exaggerated. And the, the link between colonialism and missions gets um, too heavily conflated. And um, that's more true. I mean, I know enough history that there's anything I say is a simplification. Um, that's more true with Catholic missionaries, particularly in the 19th and early 20th century. Later on, the Catholic Church, um, you have. Uh, uh, they can be very critical now of, 
abuses by Europeans. But in the 19th and early 20th century, um, the states had too much control to appoint and fund Catholic missionaries. And um, they were too afraid of anti-clerical movements kicking out the Catholic church. Um, and so they kept tended to keep their mouths shut. So there's a tighter connection for Catholic missionaries during the 19th and early 20th century. Um, you have a similar thing with Dutch missionaries, including Protestant missionaries, where they're funded by the Dutch East India Company and then tightly controlled. But for American and British and Norwegian and Swedish and lots of other missionaries, they, were, they had their own organizations. They were not directly controlled or funded by the state, which then made them much more critical. Now there's selective cooperation and selective fighting, like they weren't always fighting. Um, but, but the idea that they were just sort of like handmaidens and you know the missions were handmaidens for colonialism or like that they were all on the same page is shows you just don't know history. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's disqualifying ignorance of history. Um, you know, I wonder, the question I'm thinking right now is, you know, what have we learned here today? And again, I, I've read your study. I know Ted has as well. And I'm going to quote it once more because sure. I, I think it's what I would really love to rise to the top as people listen to this conversation here. Um, you admit there were and are racist missionaries in your study. Sure. This is quoting yeah. you. And missionaries who did and do self-centered things. But then you add, if that were the average effect, we would expect that the places where missionaries had influence to be worse than the places where missionaries weren't allowed or were restricted in action. We right. find exactly the opposite on yeah. all kinds of outcomes. Yes, so, exactly. So generally speaking, the impact of missionaries, conversionary, mm -hmm. Protestant missionaries, whose mm -hmm. primary aim was the proclamation of the gospel. Exactly. They address social ills as a part yes. of their larger picture. Yes. They brought positive effects. On average, yes, and they're very strong. Okay, so here's the thing. You can always find stories and you tell that story and then that story becomes a representative of everybody. And that can be done through fiction like Missioner or it can be done through picking historical examples of real people. Um, some of whom were racist. But like statistically, that if that was the main thing, it would leave a trace. We, we could find evidence for it. And when, when the more carefully you measure this kind of stuff, like the impact of Protestant missions is powerful and, and huge. It, it's, it's huge to the point of... Um, that it scared me sometimes when I first ran these results because I thought the effects were too large and couldn't possibly be real. So I spent a lot of time trying to make them weaker. Um, th they profoundly influenced the world and uh, most of those outcomes are things that most people would consider positive things. Yeah, it's, it's hard to think. I mean, in our world today, we have other issues that have risen to the fore. I mean, take human trafficking, for example. Right. 
if you told somebody that, you know, your imposition of human trafficking regulations on another society is colonialistic, right? they would bristle at that. Right. For gender issues or sexuality issues or all kinds of things that groups are imposing on other groups currently. Right, right. They're a different value system. Yeah. And how they are imposed matters. So if there's force, that's versus voluntary thing. I mean, but those are values of one group being imposed on another group, but without, with the assumption that it's not colonialism and it's not imposition because our values are true and real. Well, it's not actually really different. It's right. conversionary. It's, it, a, it's, a, it it's, a, it's an attempt to convert people and that can be done voluntarily or it can be through force. Right. And missionaries are crit criticized as doing it through force, but most of it was done voluntarily. I, I, I think, I mean, this weekend I watched a tech presentation. The guy giving the presentation was called the technology evangelist for the company he was representing. Right. And his job was obviously to convert you to using his products, company, his, his company's products. And I thought to myself, right. I love a little honesty. I'm glad they're yeah. calling him the evangelist. Exactly. But in the, in the broad span of things, not many people call themselves evangelists when in fact they are evangelizing for something. Right. Yeah. Well, I think Matthew, just for the sake of time, we better move on to the something I like. That's right. So this is the segment of the show where Ted, you let our listening and viewing audience know something you like. So Bob, I don't know if you've, you've read this book or not, or this two volume set, but I want to just make sure our readers are very aware of this is a, a, a very thick two volume set by Schnabel called Early Christian Mission. And this to me is some of the best uh, kind of deep material you can go through if you really want to see uh, just some fascinating, um, I don't even know what to call it. On the one hand, it's exegesis. But because it's missions, it's actually also first century sociology and first century anthropology. And there's so much stuff going on here. And so I always keep this really handy and close by my desk. And when I want a little bit of brain juice, I pull out and I read uh, a few pages. Sometimes I find myself 20, 25 minutes later realizing I'm just reading on and on. But really, I want to commend to you uh, Schnabel's two volume set early Christian mission is a great resource to tap into in the coming year. That's well, something I'm I gonna, like, Matthew. I'm going to second that, Ted. I, I told you already, I, I keep those volumes in my, the trunk of my car and I pull them out periodically. <laughs> so um, they're that Plus big. they're real thick. So if you had to create a fire, you'd have plenty of material to burn. That's for sure. That's right. And I can't leave them in the cab of the car because they're so big. So they're in my trunk. Hey, um, let's close. Rob, um, Bob, would you let us know where they can get your study? Well, um, you can just do any Google search or, you know, search online. Um, I, all my articles are uploaded at uh, academia.edu or researchgate.com. But, you know, you can just Woodbury and missions and you'll be fine things. Great. Well, I, I want to recommend that as well. I've benefited from your study and your work. So thank you so much, Bob. Mm -hmm. Thanks Welcome. a lot. Thanks for being on the show today. Appreciate Welcome. it. Before you go, would you visit our host's websites? There you will find a wealth of interesting and challenging information about the state of the Great Commission. 
They are 1615.org and missionexus.org. If you enjoyed today's episode, please like, share, and subscribe so you don't miss one. Mission Matters is presented through a partnership between 1615 Missions Coaching and Missio Nexus. 